0: This meeting is being recorded. Oh.
1: All right. Mukhu is just joining.
0: Yeah, I I think we can, uh, any of us can get started. Uh, So for those who joined late, Ajay was describing his uh, uh, pilgrimage tour um, and so this is to uh, dwarka in yeah so and, and nearby places so all right chapter 6 uh, Who would like to go uh would like to go first you want to chant or uh...
2: oh yeah if somebody can Will you uh... go ahead you can chant
3: if
0: you like
1: okay um
4: just tell me if i'm audible right because i'm actually yeah. outside but i can still go with the chat once you just a moment
0: yes so you okay yeah, yeah okay.
4: <clears throat> om shri bhagavan vacha anashkrita karmapalam karyam karma Karutiya samnyasya yogi cha nanarjnarthman chakriyah yam sanyasam itiprahur Yogam tamvidipandava Nakya sanyasta sankalpo Yogi bavati kaschana Aru robshar yogam Karmat arana Yoga rudas yatasyaiva Shamat karana mutchate Yeda hindri arteshu Nakar masva anushagjate Sarvasankalpa sanyasi Yoga rudastado chate puddare atmanatmanam na atmanam avasadayet atmaiva kyatmanobandur Atmaiva Ripurvatmanaha. Yeah, I think somebody can just uh, go with the uh, if anybody else wants to chant or maybe we could have one
0: more or we could continue with the discussions, yeah. That was wonderful, Subodh.
5: Yeah. It's it's been a while since uh, I've heard this chanted in Vishnu Sohasarnawam tune. Normally I'm so used to the Chidniya mission tune that uh,
1: okay.
5: that Swamiji and Swami Brahmananda and everybody uh, uses. But it's it's a very yeah. good nice contrast. Good to have both the tunes. It's yeah, so it, it lends itself to multiple multiple tunes.
1: Meters, yeah, multiple meters, yeah. Correct.
5: Thank you. Yeah. So if, um, if I can start, actually, I would like to kind of a little bit continue uh, a point from last week's discussion, where we were discussing about uh, the three types of yoga, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, and so on, and how they relate, which comes in. And then there is the whole path. And Arjuna is like asking which path they should take. And then Bhagavan says, there's only one path, you are joining one section of the path. Uh, so, of course, there are different schools that uh, propose different types of yoga. So, the Bhagavad Gita itself is 18 chapters. So, it's different. split into three six. That's the Tattvamasi principle. So, the first six is Tvam, next six is Tat, and then the last six is Asi. There's a different way that people split this. They say the first six is Karma Yoga, the next six is Bhakti Yoga, the last six is Jnana Yoga. And then there is yet another way who split this. And so this is the uh, Shankaracharya uh, school of Advaita Vedanta's way of looking at it. Uh, we don't split bhakti yoga and I, I include myself in this. Thanks to Swami ji uh, So the way you look at it is karma yoga. And then the next six is upasana yoga. And then the last six is jnana yoga. So where does uh, bhakti yoga go to? Uh, so in chapter 12, which we did last year in the book and then in other books, Uh, There are five levels of Bhakti Yoga described. It's like an order of ascension. And everything is encompassed into Bhakti Yoga. The first two levels of Bhakti Yoga is Karma Yoga. The next two levels of Bhakti Yoga is Upasana Yoga. The highest form of Bhakti Yoga is Jnana Yoga. So you're always doing Bhakti Yoga when you are in this path of spirituality and when you are in Advaita Vedanta, so you don't separate bhakti yoga at all. You are always doing some form of bhakti yoga. There is only which scale uh, you are in. So bhakti yoga never goes separate at all. The reason this ties very nicely into uh, chapter 6 is once again Bhagavan is saying yogi and Sannyasi are now equivalent. He said the paths are equivalent. You are just at the different sections. But here yogi or sannyasis is the same person who has renounced uh, karma and they are trying to elevate themselves and once they have elevated then they become quiet in their mind to go even higher up and how does this relate to that bhakti yoga and the other discussions the most important word here is uh, sarva sankalpa Sannyasi. so even the part of desiring something you try to renounce or you renounce and then you become a yogi and that is also the way to becoming sannyasi. So if you look at the uh, Bhakti Yoga that I just said, five levels, the first two levels are Karma Yoga. What is the first one? That is Karma Palatyagam. So at the very basic level, Bhagavan says, just whatever you get, take it with the Ishwara the Buddhi. Whatever happens to you, just renounce the fruits of it, accept it only as a Prasadam that is given to you. And then the next one, is what we saw extremely extensively in chapters three, four, and five. It's even karma tyagam, karma sannyasi. But it's not renunciation of action. It's renunciation of renunciation in action. It's the thought that I am doing it, not just you do it, but you do whatever you have to do without the doership attitude. And then the two upasana yogas are ekarupa upasana and Vishwarupa upasana. Ekarupa upasana is that you have Ishta devata and you pray God in that particular form, that mantra, chant, relate to those stories. And then Vishwarupa Upasana is what we are going to see more detail chapter 11, where you see the entire universe, all of creation, every single thing as Bhagavan. And then the highest form, fifth level of Bhakti Yoga is Jnana Yoga, which is Shravana, Manana nididhyasanam in those uh, three stages. So here now coming back to the very key phrase Sarva Sankalpa Sanyasi. So now we can see we are at like uh, kind of the third part that Bhagavan is asking us to do Tyaga. So one Karma Pala Sanyasam, two Karma Sanyasam, now Sarva Sankalpa Sanyasi, like Bhagavan is uh, ratcheting up the levels of uh, difficulty of what we have to do. So sankalpam is that desire that I have to do something that willing. After you have that Raga, Dvesha and then you have this attachment the first thing that starts is sankalpa. And then like also prayers, we hear sankalpa, right? Mama upata, samastha, drudakshetvara, Sri Parameshwarapriti artam. And then you say, oh, prada sandhya vandhanam karishye, maha omam karishye, or whatever you want to do. That's like the official Vedic uh, sankalpa. But in our mind, when the desire comes, that is also called uh, sankalpa. So that's the Sarva Sankalpa Sanyasi. It's like an extremely loaded term that even have this like drop, the desire that you have to do something. And then just as like a sneak preview, that is how the Bhagavad Gita leads up. Eventually Bhagavan is going to say, Sarvaramba Parityagi. Don't even start anything because if, you, if anything has a start, that means it has the three gunas. And anything that has a three guna, it is going to have action, modification, karma, karma phalam, and it will claim you back into the loop. And then ultimately culminating in 1866, Bhagavan says, Sarva Dharma Napi Paritya If you come this far, then dharma and adharma does not exist for you. So just be established only in maam ekam sharanam raja, just be established. That's like this five steps, then the five paths that ties the three yogas, and then how this ties to sarvasankalpa sanyasi. So I thought I'll just share that quickly.
1: Awesome. Hey, wonderful Krishna. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. So,
2: So among these uh, five shlokas of uh, chapter uh, 6, I was really moved by the commentary of the fifth verse where he defines one definition of what religion is, right? And he says, uh, there is no religion for a person who does not distinguish between an ideal self and what he is currently, right And the whole uh, the path to achieve that aspiration is what spirituality is all about. I thought that was very, very profound and uh, really hit home a point that it's all about uh, self-improvement and you should be there in terms of realizing that you're not perfect yet and you want to reach that state of, uh, you know uh, perfection that you yourself, have set as a benchmark for uh, for you to achieve. Right? So I thought that was really, really profound. It it uh, really clicked a lot of uh, things in my own mind about what this whole path is about.
6: True. In fact, I wanted to, you know, I, I was reminded of all the discussions that we have on the BITS mothership, you know. So I wanted to actually share this definition with, people there because many times we get into a wrong definition of what is religion and so on know, it goes in a completely different path there and 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 people and those of you who have um professor krishnamurti's uh, book uh you know so they've talked about i mean he talks about that in this choka actually there are seven times the word atman is used and he actually gives uh uh, and in each place, uh, I believe it is used in a different uh, sense. I, I won't do justification if I just kind of read it out. Uh, maybe Krishna, if you know, you tell or otherwise I'll paste, post. I mean, I'll take a photo of that and send it. Krishna, w- would you like to take, make an attempt? Uh,
5: uh, no, I'll, I'll let you post it. Uh, yeah. Professor V.K has written amazing. But one thing I did want to call out is in that book, he says, uh, this is the capsule that like that one part. If somebody were to very quickly say, uh, tell me what Bhagavad Gita is about, he says that Uddharet Atmana Atmanam. You have to lift yourself by yourself. That is the key phrase in the entire uh, entire Bhagavad Gita. So he says that that's like the main main thing that we all should aspire to. That I thought was beautiful. The
6: very practical advice to all of us, I think. Right. I mean,
0: Isn't this the same as... Uh, uh, right?
5: Yes. So that is the uh, the thing you can think of that as the, the resulting stage when yeah. you are happy only with yourself. How do you attain that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh,
4: let me just add my points because uh, I have a fight to catch. I the to it. So uh, I think uh, Krishna and Uday, I think you guys really spoke very well and so did Saku. Um Really impressed uh, with the deep understanding. Uh, I just thought I'll add one or two more points which I thought uh, also came up in these five verses. I think uh, somewhere, uh, you know, this entire uh, set of five verses just threw upon a few points to me. One is that it's all about internal purification. It's not about external austerities or anything like that. It's more about getting your inner uh, self, you know, clean, pure, and sanctifying that. Okay, that is one part which came up. Second was, I think, um, he claims and he says it very clearly that uh, there is no difference between a yogi and a sannyasi Right? Um, so, so, so just to add that and, you know, maybe elaborate, uh, yoga is actually union with uh, God. Which is primarily what we are saying is, you know, how the individual consciousness, you know, envelops itself with the divine consciousness. So for a yogi who's always absorbed in the thought of God, for him, the external world doesn't really, you know, appeal. Therefore, he in turn, you know, tends ends up renunciationing, uh, renunciating the external world, and therefore he's a sanyasi. And therefore, a yoga yogi is a sanyasi and a sanyasi is also a yogi. Okay, so that was the second part which uh, appeal to me, and uh, of course, uh, you know he uh, very clearly says in you know the third verse about uh, a beginner who's a aru okay, and to a yoga arud, okay, where um, he actually moves from say starting with ego you know, uh, working without an ego and an ego centric desire uh, to cleanse the mind and cleanse the mind of all the vasanas, uh, so that we don't create new impressions, and then once the mind is quietened. Uh, you know, is when you know uh, he reaches a state uh, where he, you know, strives harder to, for mental equipoise and self-application by going into deep meditation for higher growth. Uh, the point here is that withdrawal from activity can only happen once somebody reaches the state of yoga and not before that. So I think so for any person who is starting the journey, it has to be action and then go into say a state of inaction. That was the fourth third. Uh, point which I thought was coming up, and of course, uh, you know, uh, it's all about sense control, mind which we already heard in these the previous chapters. And last but not the least, I think the the fifth, uh, verse is the, you know, uh, is is stop it all because uh, I and mean it ends up saying that you know, you're responsible for everything, and it is you uh, have to uplift yourself. And there is obviously this conflict about where the mind should go, right? So, if you look at uh, the five osas again uh, you have the body uh, then you have the prana then you have the mana and then uh, the sense organs the man- manas and then you have the intellect and the uh, uh, consciousness so so the mind is at the center so the challenge actually is you know whether you are drawing your mind inward or are you uh, you know uh, succumbing or to the sense objects of the outer world through which the mind finally flows to the sense uh, organs so there I think the mind is in conflict and I think it is up to us to resolve that conflict by you know aspiring to be a part of the higher self. So these were my takeaways and I just thought I will uh, just share my point with you. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much.
2: Good summary, man. So
1: good thanks. Yeah.
7: Yeah, I mean uh, from, from my from my sort of initial reading, there were a couple of points which came through. One Subhu mentioned about how you could be a sannyasi even while being a Grahastha by doing okay. karma Yoga. So, you know, in terms of renunciation, it is not renunciation necessarily of, of everything and becoming a sannyasi. It depends on your your own sort of
1: nature.
7: So you could be a sannyasi by renouncing everything. Or you could be a sannyasi as a grahasta by renouncing the the fruits of action, uh, and and that is as good. I mean, one says that 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 sannyasi is as good or even better than a than a full sannyasi, if you will. Right. So, kind of suggesting that look, both of them are paths to renunciation, uh, and also. If you think about it, you know whether it was Krishna or or Arjuna or or, or, or Vyasa, you know everyone was a Grahasta. So you could be a sannyasi while being a Grahasta. So that was one takeaway for me. Uh, the second one was uh, interesting to the extent of uh, you know the first two uh, shlokas really talk about the importance of Karma Yoga, right? And it's almost like a you know the key point the key takeaway for me was that karma yoga leads to samatvam, right? Or equanimity. And that is kind of a prerequisite for doing dhyana or doing your sort of, you know, internal sort of meditation or kind of looking inwards. Because if you don't have that samatvam, then you would have a, Very high degree of volatility of thought, which will preempt you from focusing or or meditating or doing dhyana. So, in a way, what he is suggesting is that, and in a way, if you look at the sequence of this is coming in chapter six, he's actually kind of dwelt a lot on karma yoga and the need to kind of renounce action, renounce the results of action and the need for equanimity and, you know, not being attached to sense objects, et cetera, uh, effectively saying that, look, you cannot start with meditation. You need to do karma yoga to be successful in doing dhyana. Uh, That's something which sort of resonated with me because when I have, I mean, I've tried doing some dhyana, but I've never kind of gotten myself to focus because my mind is all over the place. And, And then you realize that unless there is, that equanimity, uh, your mind will be too much of a monkey mind and that doesn't help from a concentration of focus mind.
2: Uh, Spot on Ajay, but somewhere in this commentary itself, uh, I I thought Swami Chinmayananda says that uh, some people misinterpret the requirements for the starting of the dhyana to be too lofty, you know, the, of the karma, uh, karma yoga, uh, this thing, and uh, I, I thought that was a good caution for us, right, to not attempt the meditation path and think that we should, you know, continue on the karma yoga path. But we can do both parallelly, I think, as well.
7: Right? It's a, it's a, it's a loop, right? I mean, you do some of it. I mean, you will kind of get better as you do, as your mind becomes more equanimous. But you're right, I mean, it, it should not be a barrier to trying to focus because that's, that itself sort of kind of helps in terms of the, the balance. Yeah. But, uh, in some ways, you know, you know that whole sort of concept of uh, becoming, that whole sort of sadhana chatushtaya sampan becomes like a, an important consideration yeah. For getting into that stage, and I think, and I don't know the details, but I would reckon that this is then going towards nididhyasana uh, meditation, which uh, will require both karma yoga and jnana yoga. You know, as we go forward, but I think at this point we're really talking about dhyana, atma Dhyana uh, which uh, which requires a certain uh, certain kind of level of economy of my mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely, spot on.
6: Yeah, so so one query I have is that, you know, uh, uh, I understand from a state of uh, uh, selfless activity, you reach a a state of uh, mastering your mind. So that part, I mean, the moment is clear. But he also talks about, you know, one should, I mean, whoever is doing this should actually know when exactly he has reached the second state. And that's what he's called as uh, yoga So, I mean, somebody can throw some light on um, because I don't, I, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, I don't want somebody to misinterpret, uh, say, considering oneself as the ideal, uh, because you know he's doing selfless activities, right? When he, I think that is being cautioned against. So, um, how does one know that uh, you know he has reached a state of he's ready for uh, a state of you know a mental. Uh, must create them.
5: I can quickly answer. I know Kishore has his hand up. Like, uh, if we can answer this, then or did you have answer to this too? Okay. Go for it. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So I think the uh, the way I understood this is it's absolutely right. Like you don't have to wait for like oh I am hundred percent karma yoga done to go to the the next stage. You do start the dhyana yoga. That's why Bhagavan gives the next set of lectures. So. All this kind of becomes like a positive reinforcing loop. You do some karma yoga, your mind gets a little bit clear. You can do some meditation. You associate, oh, a little bit I can see Dhyana, and then, oh, now we are learning the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, even a little bit of Jnana yoga, if you will, but we kind of make it all reinforced back to now I know the proper attitude with which I am supposed to do my karma yoga and purify myself. So and I think like one validation is that uh, one, the lessons become much more clearer than Jnana Yoga, Shravanam and Mananam part. And then two, the Dhyana Yoga part itself, like Verily correctly said, uh, I struggle with that too. I have tried various time intervals, but something like three to five minutes seems very doable. But even if I do 20 minutes, but sometimes I have to set my goal to 20 minutes to be able to achieve that three to five minutes of internal something in the intermediate where there is some focus. And I think uh, to answer your question, Satya, that kind of becomes the uh, kind of key indicator how you have lived your other 23, that that half an hour is the report card on how you lived your other 23 and a half hours. And that kind of goes to that Ashtanga Yoga, Shama, Dhamma and all those things, how you are doing. And then not, not only that discipline part, but also the Karma Yoga and the attitude part. So your mind is more clear And it's ready to receive that knowledge. Otherwise, somebody says, you are Brahman, Tatvamasi. And no, 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 I am not Brahman. I am like trying to do my homework or something like that. right? So it it becomes very uh, conflicted, which I think ties. I'll leave to Kishore. I think he has more on the Ashtanga Yoga part.
0: Krishna, thank you. Yeah, 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 you absolutely hit the nail on its head. A couple of things here. One is, uh, uh, to me, uh, in in uh, in three, right? In in two, rather, uh, and three. Basically, it talks about yoga as being a part of the path here. So uh, I know yoga; the term is used everywhere. Um, I have a feeling, just basically reading these two shlokas, that he's actually referring to the yoga as described uh, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I mean, though Patanjali came later, as in the concept of yoga. Now, if you look at um, what yoga says, right? Uh, the definition of yoga as given in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is yoga yogasya chitta vritti nirodha, right? Yes, here it's the word used is sankalpa, uh, which is thoughts. The chitta vritti is again the movement mm-hmm. in or uh, the movement, the mental movement uh, um, our mental activities. And Nirodaha is basically, obviously, cessation of the mental activities. So he's saying, uh, well, I know uh, the sutras is a different format, and hence everything is in, um, is heavily compressed format, right? Uh, and it needs to be expanded to actually give you the meaning. So this, this verse soon after that, the next verse, it says, um, so yoga se chitta viti Nirodaha, Tada drishtuhu swarupe avastana is the next one, which is when you are established in such a state, right? When there is stillness and when there is mental quietitude, then you are in, you, you are um, established in your real nature. Tada drishtuhu swarupe so rupee meaning that your real nature you're one to one you are face to face with your reality your ultimate reality so that's kind of what uh, yeah, the two sutras this is the second and third sutra say right which is essentially the same thing but because that is a different format it, it it it's like think of it as super zipped compressed version that needs to be expanded right um uh, uh, and then it goes on to talk more about thoughts, right? In the next following verses is all about the type of thoughts we are engaged in at all times, which is also something Swamiji talks about here um, and um, in these verses, because the, the ultimate aim in this part or in this section of the path is mental quietude, stillness. Um, and how do we get there? is the question, right? Because un- unless we have something like that, unless we are able to achieve that state, it is almost impossible to absorb this higher level of teaching, right? So it's it becomes a prerequisite to have a mind that's relatively still, in fact, uh, for the most part, right? Now equanimity would be one aspect of it and, and um, um, calmness, not not having one type of craving or, or aversion. Uh, you know, they all come to the same thing. I, actually, uh, Buddha would talk about craving and aversion as being the, the main thing. But that, again, is about the mind going in different directions and pulling us or having a very strong binding thoughts, right? Because once, you know, a thought comes and you start to engage with it, it starts to, it starts to uh, snowball into something bigger. And then once it starts becoming bigger, the power of binding is even higher. So we, we have to now engage with it even more. We, we're helpless. And then it becomes even bigger. Right? So it becomes that, this uh, huge loop that eventually overcomes us right? and eventually leading to some type of action. Might be a violent action, might be something we say, which is bad and so on which again causes other agitations later. So end result is mind becomes very agitated, right? So how do we um, get to a state where we can constantly be in this stillness, right? I mean, in the sense that we're still active and everything, but the mind is not getting bound uh, unnecessarily uh, by different thoughts, right? Like the thoughts don't like completely take us over, right? It's not like we can suppress the thoughts, We cannot, we don't have direct access to it. We can't say, we don't have a switch that says, turn off thoughts. We don't, right? We don't have access to anything like that. And hence, there are different layers in which um, they have built this up, saying, these are all the different steps that you may have to take, depending on us, individuals, each of us may have different, um, more emphasis on certain things, depending on our own vasanas, right? So um so the way i think about it is okay uh the mind actually is very is pure sattva we have added impurities on top right now uh those are the vasanas and other experiences that have left um impressions there on top of it now then the question is how do you just slowly remove one layer after the other so karma yoga helps to remove certain layers all right it, it it um um um, yeah, that's, that's one. Now, if you look at uh, yoga sutras and, or even in Gita, it will come, uh, come up with in uh, values of values, basically. right? The first two, yamas and niyamas, are exactly what you said, uh, uh, Krishna, which is, what do you do the 23 and a half hours? <laughs> determines what happens in 20 minutes or 30 minutes of meditation. right? Um, so it gives us a path, shows us how we engage in the world, right? Um, And provides a framework, uh, if you will, because we are all going to face different situations. How do we act in those situations so that the mind is still uh, relatively calm? Um, And then why is that important? Because it it is important to be able to um, uh, focus. When we say focus, it's uh, uh, being able to stay with one thought rather than being completely dispersed in the type of thoughts that we, uh, you, we usually get. Um, and to eventually get to a point where we can experience that oneness with our higher reality, right? So, and why? Because once you, uh, yoga takes a slightly different thing, right? Where once you experience that oneness with that inner reality, um, it's as then the, uh, when nana yoga comes in, as and you start to read about it, you start to identify with more because you've kind of experienced a little bit pieces of it. And then it's um, it definitely gives you, um, what do you say? Practically, you've kind of seen it. And now when you read the theory, it's it's kind of both going hand in hand in some ways is how I understand it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, uh, this is a nice way in which I, I think um, uh, the teachings of yoga are mixed in really well and and We can kind of see where it kind of fits in. Um, I'm actually very surprised, I'm amused that uh, many uh, pure Vedantic teachers don't give much importance to the yoga sutras and I see why, because the philosophical side they might apparently look different as uh, um, we have discussed here earlier. earlier. It's all finally the same thing if you understand it clearly, um, but then it looks different. but there is so much to it that, uh, in my opinion, is so relevant uh, in, in terms of mental purification that, um, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, this, this would be my question to Swami P if I were to uh, meet him, um, why is that so? And um, why are these two schools not more closer than what it is right now um, and what it was back in the day? Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Just one more point regarding uh, how do we know, like Satya's question, how do we know when you reach this point or not? Um, I think um, uh, it it will, uh, I, I saw recently Swami piece, the, the uh, daily thing that you send, Krishna, the picture with Swamiji and uh, one of the uh, his sayings. And a few days ago, I, somebody sent this to me. It basically said, Um, What, what uh, the question was from someone was, uh, um, how is, uh, how do I know what my um, mental uh, bindings are, right? And uh, Swami P's answer was, when you meditate, observe what comes through, what are those thoughts that keep coming back? Those are your mental bindings, basically. Because what happens is when you meditate, what happens is slowly, to whatever extent, it. Your other activities slow down. The mind is, you know, you're slowly disengaging, and, and then it allows for um, whatever is bothering you to actually pop up even more. So initially, it might actually seem like, wow, there's a flood of activity, right? Um, the other example used is that of a, I know I'm sorry, I'm talking too much, but uh, I just wanted to share this. Um, other examples use that's used is that of a soda bottle right um this is from Swami Tadatmananda he um he says a soda bottle always has a little bit of air at the top right and when when you release it or uh, and if depending on how much it's been agitated that much it's going to uh, uh, it's going to come up right we've seen that now he uses the same uh analogy to explain the mind what happens is um uh You know, in meditation, what I mean, usually other activity, we are engaged in so many activities, the mind is continuously engaged. And that is like that air on top, it suppresses everything else. You're engaged in something else, and now whatever is in deeper in your mind is is gone because you are now super engaged and busy with other things. Now, in meditation, it's like literally opening the cap. Depending on how agitated the inner the the soda water is the um, carbonated water is that much it's going to blow up initially initially it's going to happen so you're going to see there's a flood of thoughts when you start meditating initially and it might seem like wow this is too daunting uh it's not possible right um but again going back to yoga in yoga uh, uh, there is one sutra that says um basically i don't remember the exact one but basically says uh, this has to be practiced daily over a long period of time with Shraddha. Uh, similar to, uh, it, it's very similar to what Swami P uh, says about uh, consistent, regular practice, right? So this is exactly that. Basically, saying do it every single day, no matter where you are, what situation, uh, no matter what, right? It has to be done every single day, um, and um, even if it means it's two minutes, three minutes, it doesn't matter. Um, over a period of time, I've seen this in myself, uh, that two minutes becomes 20 and, and eventually it is no longer a struggle. It actually turns around and reaches a point where it, yeah, it, it, it's something that you look forward to and you absolutely enjoy. It is your personal vacation of sorts. You don't have to go anywhere for vacation. This is your vacation basically, right? Every day it's with you. Um, so, um, yeah, I'll stop here. I know I was talking quite a bit. Sorry about that, but just wanted to share a few thoughts. There.
7: So, so just a couple of quick thoughts, uh, uh, Sure. I, I think I agree with you. The whole yoga sutras are a are much more elaborate uh, in terms of how to live your life, right? Uh, to a large extent. And in a way, sort of, it's a, it's an extension in my mind of what should be your karma yoga approach, right? Uh, and, and Swami P, in fact, uh, to your point, I, I listened to one of his, part of his uh, initial lecture on, on, on dhyana, and he actually says in that, that I will come to yoga, yoga sutras as I go along. So I'm looking forward to to listening to him on what his view on yoga, yoga sutra is. But one question that I wanted to ask as you we were talking was, uh, meditation is not a substitute for jnana yoga, correct? Uh, and the prerequisite for doing dhyanam is that you have to not prerequisite but an important sort of element is that you should have uh, your mind should be stable right and you should not have that wild oscillations of your chitta right or chitta vritti rather uh, and I, I heard you say that you know it's very useful do it every day two minutes goes to 20 minutes but just from your sort of experience and your sort of pretty deep reading of the yoga sutras what is the
1: tangible benefit of doing dhyana
0: yeah uh, excellent question like what is uh, uh you know when you meditate think of it this way i was just ex- actually uh, explaining this to my son yesterday um so Think, to me, one one aspect, right, obviously, when you talk about meditation, you come at it from different perspectives. One aspect which relates to this uh, particular topic of mental quietitude, stillness, is that you learn to observe your mind in meditation, right? In meditation, you kind of go in inward, right? You start with your body. It could be any... I, again, I don't want to get into the specific type of meditation, but finally, uh, you know, whether it's, um, you, you are going inward, you're observing your mind, right? One way or the other. Now, which means you're training yourself to observe, be the observer, to be observant of the thoughts in your mind, right? Now, now this is like, to me, meditate, um, the period of meditation is like going to the gym or practice, if you're a, or if you're a, um, if you play an instrument, then it's like your morning sadhana on a daily basis, right? You, you have to practice on a daily basis to be able to um, actually play at a concert later, right? Now, it, it is like that. You're building muscles. You are, um, it's becoming natural. So in this case, it's becoming natural to be observant of your own thoughts, right? Or if, when you do this on a daily basis. Now, we are faced with situations somebody says something to you, somebody cuts you on the road, you're faced with a difficult situation, to make a decision at work, um, you have an uphill task to complete, a lot of things to do, a very challenging task, whatever may be the case that we all end up facing one way or the other. To me, at that time, it allows you to observe how when somebody says something to you, what is happening to yourself, right? So do we um, immediately respond? It gives you that gap basically to decide between response and uh, to, to respond properly re- versus reacting to that, right? It gives you that gap and it, this is uh, Swami uh, SPG has mentioned in one of the IAT lectures, talks about this gap, um, it, it broadens that gap, right? Giving you the power of awareness at that time, at that instant saying this, whatever this person told me is, I have certain thoughts coming up of not liking what that person said. Now, it gives you the power of response rather than reacting. The power of response would be, yep, I don't like it. But at the same time, I don't want to respond in kind to that person because it's going to cause even more agitation in me, right? To be able to shout at somebody, uh, Swami G in his lectures on Yoga Sutra says, um, Anger, It talks about anger specifically, because this is one of the, uh, Ahimsa is one of the Yamas, and in, con- in that context, he talks about anger. Swami Swamiji says, anger is like, um, uh, it, it, it's like taking acid in your hand and throwing it on somebody, right? Because you want to hurt someone, you want to throw acid on, he uses, uses acid for, for the, to, to kind of extreme, give it an extreme example. He says, it's like taking acid in your hand and then throwing it on somebody. Who does it affect first? It, it, it literally affects you first. Before, and as, whatever is remaining is going to affect the other person in whatever way. So he says, anger is going to cause problems for you first. Actually, even if you think in a, a, in a little more scientific way, anger starts in the head, right? Anger starts in the head. Um, and this, you can replace anger with stress or anything else. It starts in the head, and then we decide to react in a certain way, right? That decision is happening also in the head, and once that decision happens, right? Now, let's say the decision is to shout at that person, let's just say. But to be able to shout, it the body now it has to now go back into the physical body, where the signal has to be sent to the physical body, and enough um, toxins have to be generated in the physical body. To create a fight response right a fight response and literally shakes you up it generates so much toxins for you to say something bad right to express that anger so much has been has to happen now imagine all that toxin is there in the body at this point it is not going away after the anger has been ex- expressed so if you do this on a daily basis, you can imagine now it replace anger with stress, anxiety, everything else, that all starts in the head, but has to have a physical expression one way or the other. You are going to, your physical body is just going to become um, more and more filled with these toxins. Now, what, what are, I mean, these toxins, when I say it, it's actually these hormones that help you uh, express that kind of anger, we shake with anger, they say, right? I mean, it's, yeah. what does that mean, right? We don't breathe properly uh, when we are angry. Again, another expression. It's a hint that the mind is supremely agitated at this point, that the, even um, breathing is now um, made shallow. So there is this response that happens in the physical body to be able to do that, right? Um, now, all that is extremely bad or done over a period of time if it's done every day, as an example, or multiple times in a day. Now the question is, is it worth it? Because you are destroying yourself first. That's the acid holding the acid in your hand first and it's destroying you. Now this kind of discriminative thinking helps us overcome anger. Right? Um, and yeah. uphold ahimsa. Let's say you, so Swamiji says just take ahimsa as the one thing and it's like a noodle everything else will follow. Right? Um, because if you say At any cost, I'm going to uphold ahimsa at the level of um, action, speech, and thought. If you just say, This alone is my everyday, if this is your sankalpa every day, as you meditate or after you meditate, this is your sankalpa, uh, then he says everything else will just kind of follow, and anger will actually, if there are anger issues, that will disintegrate. If there are jealousy issues, that will disintegrate. He says that alone is. Very very powerful, right? And that's why it's the first Yama um, in Yoga Sutras, right? The first and the last are usually uh, the more significant ones. Um, uh, uh, at least in the context of Yoga Sutras, they say that. Um, yeah. So uh, I would say, in short, coming back to your question, it is like what is the, it is like for a tennis player a practice before the match, or a period of time, many years, and then that prepares you for the match. For a musician, it's the um, morning sadhana every day uh, to be able to sing in a concert. Uh, to me, meditation allows us to, um, allows us that gap, no matter what situation is thrown at you, can you respond uh, and keep your mind stable at all times, even though you're put in different situations? So that is that training ground in some ways to w- watch your own mind.
7: Well, thanks, Kishore. That's very helpful. Very helpful. <laughs> I like that response versus react kind of uh, point, which I think is something we all have to deal with.
2: Ajay, for me, the tangible benefit of meditation has been uh, a very perceptive reduction in stress. Uh, And so much so that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not as regular with meditation as I would like to be. But when I get into stressful situation, I resort to meditation as a means to, you know, Uh, reduce my uh, stress as well and it works, it always works. So,
7: uh, How long do you typically keep the focus?
2: My whole routine is about uh, 45 minutes but uh, the meditation part is uh, about 8 minutes or so. Uh, But yeah, to get to that 8 minutes, I need to do my breathing routine, uh, humming routine etc.
7: great. Any, anyone else who's who's been doing meditation and wants to share their their experience or what's working for
1: them or not? I'm definitely happy to share mine,
0: but uh, feel free to ask. Uh, I can share it. Um,
7: yeah, because I've tried it and I've never, it's never sort of, got on to into, into me, and I, I kind of do want to start start it with some some regularity, but I just need some inspiration. so
5: yeah. I can give a little uh, bit. Of the, uh, go, go ahead, sorry.
8: What are you, saying No, Shamla please go ahead. Um, it's a little bit of uh, my experience, right? I've been trying this for the last couple of years. I have been mostly regular. I won't call it extremely successful, but I continue to kind of, you know, actually go there at a particular place at a particular time, sit and, you know, close eyes and try to focus, right? And sometimes it varies from, you know, in 5-10 minutes, I've lost focus. Sometimes it could be, you know, more than 30 minutes. Is it very useful? Is it useful? Extremely useful. I think first and foremost, a discipline for me. Um, and it definitely wants me to go back. Uh, there's something that you feel really good that you want to try, even whether you' are able to completely be successful at it or not. Second, and actually this is what I put as a talk most, is it helps me to reset the day, right? You know especially when I take those 10, 15 minutes out of a busy work day or whatever. When I go back, I think I'm starting afresh and not really continuing any of those, transactions I've done before or emotions associated with it so the kind of um, you know you feel more stable you feel more in control you feel that you are um, able to kind of keep a perspective than just keep rolling with the transactions it it gives a very good sense of uh, freshness and so hopefully I'll get better at this but practically it really helped me to kind of ground and move uh, past you know, whatever has happened through the day. Just a checkpoint, just a good reset point is how I felt.
7: No, thanks, thanks, that's very useful. And just one other associated question. Do you just watch your thoughts or you just avoid any thoughts?
8: Watch, I try to watch thoughts. And uh, I think just like Kishore said, it's a function of what we have done before. So if there could be uh, a soda bottle example was beautiful, right? You know, if there was a conversation even at work. I, I, I started actually when it started to do during the COVID as a midday. There was a support group who were doing it typically at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, let me just go sit with along with them. So there were pre-transactions which were the top of the mind. Um, and once they settled down, actually, I felt there were things that probably that impacted me also were coming uh, you know, as passing thoughts. Um, I could neither do anything to control it so it was just sitting and watching and you get used to really watching them and not not you know really and then there was also cue given to me saying if you get drifted into thoughts focus on um, you know the center of the eyebrow or uh, you know heart region that also actually helps you know the minute you put a stop to that when I say stop gently take the focus into a different point, even thoughts start to slow down. So there was a pattern of immediately done transactions, maybe the ones that impacted you more and slowly it it starts to kind of settle at some pace. So I'm not avoiding them. Um, I think I'm just, you know, sometimes actually it's like a 30 minutes full of thoughts, nothing else. I mean, there is probably hardly any focus, but I still would like to go and sit because The other important point for me was even those 30 minutes continuously thinking with no access to these panchendriyas was also rejuvenating. Somewhere I heard that these, uh, you know, how, what we see, what we hear could also be um, dissipating your energy. So physically cutting them off and maybe still the mind is active was useful, is useful for me.
0: Excellent points. Excellent points. Actually, Um, uh, uh, Shamla, what you're describing uh, I would say there are so many, I would categorize many of them as side benefits right, even though it says okay, this is um, well, meditation eventually leads to being one-to-one with your inner self I mean, that would be, let's say, the highest goal there's so many um, benefits along the way right, as you described just the clarity of thought um the ability to take decisions in a little more grounded more clear way it seems like you would it seems like the right answer would be presented is presented to you because just because it it always has been for all of us but it gets lost in the myriad of other thoughts that kind of dissipate the uh, one thought that's trying to tell you the intellect is trying to tell you the answer to something that you're thinking about but then gets lost in this um, period of thoughts uh, in, in the emotional mind, right? So you so there's clarity of thought because the other uh, thoughts die down, and hence the intellect is able to actually shine forth a little bit more, right? And you'll see that that's that's clarity of thought. Um, energy levels, tremendous energy level, right? So. If let's say somebody does meditation in the morning, let's say 5.30 to 6 30 around that time frame, you would get up whatever energy you've got up with, like you know, you slept well, you got up with a certain energy level, that would be the same thing at 11 in the night. There is no it almost seems like no matter how much you work, there's no dissipation of energy. It's it's like you've tapped into a different source of energy. Right. So um uh you experience that which is uh, to me phenomenal because this energy is not the type of energy that you get from caffeinated drinks or anything else that we eat or consume. This is uh, a different type of uh, uh, sattvic energy, right? This, is, um, this energy comes from a mind that is not constantly engaged with some action because there's a lot of prana being used uh, to generate those thoughts to be engaged in those thoughts and to build up on those thoughts and so on. And what are these thoughts? Planning, scheming, um, uh, judging. There's so many things that's happening at every instant. When dies, when that dies down, that even that amount of energy is given back. It seems like wow, uh, this is the. It, it, it just transcends you into a different space in terms of energy. Um, so I, I'm saying these are like side benefits. Um, uh, obviously. Uh, you will experience this along the way, but then um, uh, the bigger picture is what is it, what is prescribed. Again, yoga defines meditation really well. Dhyana, what is dhyana? Right, it gives you saying that uh, the benefit of dhyana is that it increases. Sattva. I think I, I, I put this up a little bit the other day, but basically, yoga asanas reduce um, rajas. Pranayama reduces tamas. When these two reduce, sattva has to increase to some extent. And on top of that, when you do meditation, it increases sattva. So, end result is that body and mind is more sattvic. Now, if you do that earlier in the morning, when I say, let's say before 7 a.m., before 6 a.m., preferably, the environment is also sattvic. It just helps you get to that level of sattva even more so you tap into the sattva of the environment and top of this you are also becoming even more sattvic through this process so yeah, my t- yoga sutra teacher he said that please do all three together um, because one reduces the, uh, you know if you just do asanas it, it can result in um, it reduces rajas but it can increase tamas also because if one guna reduces, the other two have to increase to balance it out. So it, it has a potential to increase tamas. So by doing pranayama along with it, you're guaranteed that both of them are reduced and hence increases sattva. Now, on top of that, if you meditate, it increases sattva even more so, right? So um, an interesting perspective from, uh, from uh, Yoga Sutras on what meditation is. Uh, and yeah, basically, you, you feel that sattvic energy, I would say. Chitra, want to go
2: next?
9: Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you really want to hear, but anyway, since Ajay was asking about people and who meditate and what's your uh, um, what have you gotten? So I've been meditating for uh, since I was twenty-three, so quite a long time. So let me tell you, uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's never uphill. As a matter of fact, uh, you go up and then you feel like you're going down, 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 down for a long time. Um, before then, you know, it feels like, okay, maybe you're going up a bit. Um, so uh, at least that's that's been my experience. So I will not say that it's always, uh, you know, always been an amazing experience or always I sit down and, you know, I'm into this beautiful state. No, but there are days when you do get it. And the funny part is when you get it, you want to replicate it, but it's unreplicatable. It's almost like, you know, the more you search for it, the more it hides. Um, why do I do it? I don't know. It's just as a practice. I feel something to hold on to. Uh, I think some people pray, some people, uh, you know, everyone has different things. Um. So so I think you have to believe in it, uh, and if you believe in it and it becomes a practice, then slowly you start seeing some benefits. I, I don't know if it's because of aging or it's because of the meditation. I, I really don't know, but definitely you you will see a few things coming up. But if we are expecting it to be a smooth journey, I don't know what. <laughs> so I mean, there are days when I say, "What nonsense! This meditation is all." humbug and bogus and useless, you know, I don't know, I've been doing for so long and it's just done nothing for me, but then I always come back. Um, So obviously, I suppose it's giving me some peace of mind, I assume. I don't know if that helps, Ajit.
1: It's useful perspective. uh, Yeah. Uh, Krishna?
5: Uh, I think Nivya should go. I have spoken enough. I'll give Great.
10: Thank you thank you. There. Um, yeah I, I heard quite a few um, sort of experiences of meditation which I can completely correlate with. Um, and what is very interesting is a couple of months ago um, through the art of living um, setup, up I, uh, I actually went through the whole uh, you know series of classes. Uh, taking the mantra diksha, and uh, what I realized uh, after going through that, and um, you know the whole thing around doing the pranayam, doing the yoga and then doing the meditation, the sequence um, helps the body get, you uh, know, it, it almost like positions the body in the right sequence to um, achieve as much as is possible almost like it maximizes the ability to benefit from the meditation. So that I found was really, really interesting, right? I will not by any means say that um, I have been really good at it. My discipline has not been where I would have liked it to be, but at least now I know the tools, the techniques, and I can go back and keep um, trying to do more of it. The other thing which is very interesting is, and I think there was a comment earlier about, it is what you do in the other 23 and a half hours that determines what happens in the half an hour. I'm not sure if I have directly been able to correlate that or not, but this bit is sure. Some days the meditation session in 25 minutes, I would get more than, I would feel like I just completely lost count of time. It became timeless. I was surfing, so the word that comes to my mind, and I have never surfed in my life, but the word, the the, mm, the feeling that comes to my mind is surfing, you know, or floating. I I have no control over my own being, and uh, there is something which is just lifting me and taking me through space, and and have had that several several times. But uh, like I think it was Chitra who said, if I try to replicate it, if I try too hard, it's gone. So the the whole trick is to not try. The whole trick is to just go in and sit there and let the feeling take over. Um, and that happens only when we completely let ourselves go. Easier said than done. But... Um, a few tips one is the sequence two is possibly earlier in the day three is what is the state of mind in the rest of the 23 hours which is again easier said than done because life uh, happens but um, but when when uh, you know the times when i have gone through the stage where i finish a meditation session and i look at the clock and the clock has gone well past the time that I would have expected it to be, Um, that day is definitely a a very different day. So, so there's something in it. Uh, I think most of these are the side benefits. I definitely, I I listened to uh, Swami uh, SPG's uh, session on YouTube today on, Chapter 6, where he's talking about meditation and why, what are the number of reasons he talked about why you should not do meditation, even though he talked about all of those as side benefits. Um, uh, and I could see a lot of those, uh, recognize a lot of those, right? You know, the whole thing around the focus, the attention, uh, helping with anxiety, helping with depression, helping to, uh, you know, calm the mind, all, all of those things and of course then he talks about uh, you know how it can just give the mind powers which are obviously not uh, not advisable to be used so very illuminating and thank you very much for all the um, you know uh, all the huge wisdom that has been coming out i just feel so um <laughs> privileged to be at least listening to it maybe not ex- uh, absorbing all of it thank you Thank you
0: for sharing your thoughts. Very useful. Thank you.
10: Mukhu, I think you should
5: go uh, share first and then I'll follow you.
3: Sure. So, um, you know, I think I, for personally, for me, the, you know, none of the, I started what, um, just around the time I met my guru, like 15 years back, that's when I started first the idea of meditation. Uh, I tried in you know, some of the silent, personally, you know, again, a personal perspective, right? none of the silent, quiet, watching meditations worked for me, because it, the thoughts were very, you know, like like somebody said, I think Shamla said 30 minutes of thought, right, and, and fidgeting and very restless, that's kind of how I was made, none of that worked, and then when I met my guru, there was one um, technique called Maha mantra which is a kind of humming technique that uh, I really that really, when I started trying that. That really, like I got really like like that, you know, because I could really see an impact of it. Uh, because it's not think sitting quietly but doing something, right? Uh, and then um, immediately, you know, I could. I mean, experience was centering of the energy, right? So you do it, and then you feel uh, the the day is just as quieter, and right? that's was the experience, right? So I started kind of doing that uh, to some regularity, but then again, after some time, it it uh, stop doing it but then you know uh, fortunately you know by then you know I start interacting and getting more initiations from my guru so he would constantly change the technique right so every suddenly he will do something else and say he will ask us to do something else xyz and then so we'll kind of just followed followed him followed what are his directions were, and um you know very interestingly over the time again, this also a lot of initiations were given by him, right? So dikshas were given, it's just not um, a technique, but a dikshas were also given. Um, my diksha is you know, like, um, just for some of you not uh, used to the word, diksha is an initiation where you know, an enlightened being can um, infuse, um, like give you a like a boost, right? Like, a, like a diksha is a like he's from a shaktipat tradition, right? So it's an energy. Uh, energy he will give, right? Uh, so what I started realizing is that, I mean, just you go through the journey. Right? Once a guru comes, you're not thinking anymore, right? You turn right, you turn left, you just, just follow the sequence. Again, it's not like all the time we do it, right? At least I would say, I give myself like a 40% follow ship, right? 60% I'd still not follow it. Um, that's kind of how my pattern was. But very interestingly, I mean, this happened for five, six, seven, eight years, right? um and you're and with the journey with the guru is very intense he's not having you time to think through anything uh, it's like r- life running at you know 360 miles an hour right that's intensity what the guru will put uh, at least he put me through it uh literally no time to sleep and no time to eat it's just, that's the intensity of the life uh he he put me through right so again there'll be some whatever technique he gives you whenever possible you do it but very interestingly, you know, no thinking, no ability to think during that phase, right? The intense phase. Then at one point, he kind of dropped that intensity. Slowly, the intensity went away. Uh, again, it's, I'm saying, I'm using the word he, but he as an it's not like he's orchestrating my life, but uh, the way life will evolve through his grace, right? Uh, he's guiding every aspect of the life. Uh, the intensity started reducing, very that's when kind of started observing that, uh, you know, the net effect of all this journey, right, all the Dikshas, initiation, Meditation I did, essentially the thought um, the thought kind of, the amount of thought I had had gone down drastically, right, um, so it's almost like the, the, I mean, the way I would just, uh, I mean, he, he also gave this example, right, so this, this experience, so basically, let's say there is a small um, a vessel in which there's water and you you drop a pebble, right, that'd be a lot of water will jump off, right, you increase the uh, size of the vessel, right, when you drop the same pebble, uh, then you know, the the water will jumble, but it's not going to be a lot. So then it becomes a lake, you drop a pebble, you know, it's, and then it becomes an ocean, even an elephant walks, nothing's going to happen. He says that's exactly what an enlightenment experience is, your inner space will grow, right. And the inner space goes, life will keep hitting you with whatever curveballs, you know, everything. But not, there will be no, no movement in the inner space. Because your inner space will be able to accommodate everything. Everything in the world will be able to be part of that. Uh, that is kind of the analogy. Slowly, as I kind of going through, when he started loosening the pace, that's what I started observing in my life. And then I realized that's how it has been the last seven years. So I never, I never, I was never able to perceive it. But then it was life was all about that, right? Just the, the quieting, 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 settle down, settle down, settle down, uh, more and more, more and more over the years. And then I would say the last uh, after after the you know the lot of after he started quieting down the life uh, intensity of my life was reduced. Uh, it is now more shravana Marana nidhyasana. There's no really there. There's no other technique that works. It just life comes and you respond to life with the new cognition, right? Uh, newer understandings. Uh, and, and you know, the ripple just uh, continues to reduce and reduce and reduce, right? So, I mean, slowly you're just responding to life. Uh, there's not like a lot of reaction to life. Uh, that's kind of how my journey with the meditation and, and with the guru has been. So.
0: Thank you, Muk. The example of yes. the pebble is uh, fantastic. Yeah, I think really good one.
5: Uh, So I wanted to add like one, one other uh, angle of the the benefits of meditation. So this is from like the uh, psychology, psycho uh, studies, psychoanalysis studies. Uh, Is this, this whole thing of meditation uh, is what is uh, they call metacognition that I am thinking that I'm thinking. Uh, So like normally when we have the stimulus, we give a quick response, react, uh, whatever it be. It is very, very quick uh, because of the way we have evolved We are biological uh, nature. So most of the time, you have to make a very, very quick decision as we were evolving, maybe up until the last couple of thousand years ago. Before that, it was all like you have to react really, really quickly. So it's the, the either the fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three natural responses that quickly come. Their survival kind of pretty much depended on it. Um, So we are, uh, and it actually is a little bit counter to the point that Kishore, uh, the way he expressed it, it actually does not start with thinking and then your body gets prepared the other way around when they did. for Maybe for some cases like this, the body actually starts doing a lot of things and then your mind comes up with the cognition and the recognition and it comes up with the reasoning, oh, this is why I did all these things. And you build up a reason for why you behaved in certain way. So your heart rate is going up, your breathing is going up, your adrenaline is shooting up, the certain muscle part of your body, like if you have to run or if you have to use your hands, those are getting energized and getting ready to take an action. And then this all starts happening right from the 25th millisecond or something. And it's only at the 300 millisecond, your brain now realizes all this physical activities happening. And then it says, oh, this is because... Now, like you find a reason saying, oh, that I am going to quickly act this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to say this. And uh, we later think oh, all these other things happened because I thought I have to make a response to this. And I'm feeling threatened. Uh, right. So what happens when you do this uh, meditation? So one is that in the modern day, now we are not being threatened every single second all the time. So you do not need to be so agitated. Uh, as much. And hence, this is a way to kind of just step back and think of yourself in the third person. I think I'm getting angry. I think I'm going to have a harsh response. This is not good for me, or this is not something to my liking and I'm going to make a response. That that metacognition part is what the mind uh, teaches, the, the meditation teaches your mind to do. So this is again, the marathon analogy. If we suddenly ask somebody, hey, get up and now, start running or walking for 26 miles you'll not be able to do you have to start with like maybe half a kilometer one kilometer and then expand slowly and then your body is able to do so it's the the calm control situation where you practice this thing so when you have like this long real life situation that hits you uh, we are able to uh, respond to that uh, so the the other examples that that come to mind is transcendental meditation. This Mahesh Yogi who came to USA and he popularized yoga and meditation a lot. And that's like, even though that's not the prime goal of yoga, everybody saw the quick benefit of it. So at least for the side benefits that everybody can quickly start even without understanding all the deep theory and something. If you're just able to sit, just watch your thought, watch your breath, say a mantra, repeat something, do any one of this very wide variety of meditation techniques available. Everybody still able to see the path. So this kind of kindled the interest of Harvard uh, doctors. So they did this experiment. And they said, hey, transcendental meditation people, would you come up for an experiment? And then they called the Zen Buddhist. And then they called everything. Uh, everyone and said, do a meditation. We'll put you in the fMRI machine and all that. Put some electrodes on you, cathodes on you, and then measure. And then they found that the meditation has uh, real psychological benefits and psychiatric benefits, too. But they being scientists, they did one more clever thing. They had a control group and they told them, like, don't believe in anything, don't say any mantra or anything, just keep repeating like a very uh, normal, ordinary word. Just say one, 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 one for some few minutes. And they found that those group also got the same benefit. So that is how they kind of came up with this theory. It's not like that one mantra that is doing it or one breath technique that's doing it. It is just like they were able to abstract away a little bit. It is this concept of metacognition I'm thinking I'm thinking and you practice yourself a little bit and give your mind the focus and the uh, deliberate uh, the the time to get to make a deliberate response that ends up helping you the rest of the time when the real life uh, hits you so there's like a lot of this really nice cool uh, science-backed things to it of course that's all like completely side benefits but it provides a very, very interesting angle. Like no matter uh, what, what meditation technique we do, as long as we are doing it with this metacognition thing, it is going to definitely help.
0: If I may add, uh, Muku, before uh, you go to, to this point, uh, uh, thank you so much. I mean, that, that, that really brings yet another perspective and obviously a lot of research has also been done. Um, so to the last point of you know is it that mantra or is it i mean obviously as anyone who would have received a mantra um, gone through like whether it's out of living or something else out of living b- basically uh, 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 sri sri was a disciple of mahesh yogi right i mean and uh, and that um, it's not something that uh, marshi uh, um, you know he made it popular but it's basically the yoga method which is to f- focus on one thing. You give the mind one thing to do. So usually the mind is, uh, is dispersed, right? It's constantly juggling between different things. And that is the natural state of the mind, right? It's going to jump one thing or the other. It, it, yeah, as the, there's a common example of a, of a drunken monkey who's just jumping from one tree to the other, right? That, that is that uh, example. But you're giving it one thing to do. Now that one thing could be anything. It could, and obviously, uh, having a a short mantra would be uh, is one one way that is prescribed. But it could be about uh, watching your breath if it is vipassana, right? It could be um, watching a candle that is lit in front of. It could be just anything, going from many to one, and then as as that one uh, the concentration on one expands over a period of time, which is dharana by the way, which is ex- as explained in the sutras, then it evolves into dhyana, where there is no effort being put into focusing on one. It becomes effortless. Right? It becomes effortless. You're not trying anymore. There is no trying at that point. The uh, The concentration becomes your natural state. It evolves into that state. And beyond that is samadhi, right? Which is it evolves again where even that one thing drops and then what happens? Then there's, you're left with your own self at that point, right? Even that old, the, the focal point also drops, right? So that's kind of the, the, um, the, the yoga, uh, yoga's prescribed kind of method, if you will. The best book I've seen, I, again, I'll post it in the WhatsApp group, uh, this is also there uh, as YouTube videos and a book. And This is, again, I, um, based on my limited knowledge of different books uh, on meditation. The me- meditation book by Swami Tadatmananda is, uh, he captures, pulls in uh, information from uh, Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Sutras and Upanishads to, to write a, a fantastic book for uh, people who are starting uh, to meditate. Uh, it's called Meditation. I'll, I'll provide the link. Uh, he talks about three methods, right? He, I mean, three broad categories of meditation. I mean, there are any number of techniques and methods. We'll not go into that. One is concentration. One is observation, right? Which is mindfulness, being able to observe your mind. Concentration is more like this mantra, right? Or any one thing, breath, mantra, it could be anything. Uh, uh, observation. And the third one is devotion, as he calls it. where it, uh, uh, So he categorizes it into broad three broad categories, and then provides, if you will, technique uh, in each of these categories. So depending on what we kind of uh, gravitate towards, for some people, certain things will work. For me personally, mindful uh, observation works um, more than concentration. So for others, it might be something else. But um, again, I I, I link that book. It talks about it in a really, really nice way.
5: Uh, very quickly, Kishor, you should also post the link to uh, Edwin Bryant's Yoga Sutras. Oh, absolutely. Good, uh...
0: Yeah, yo- yeah, Yoga Sutras, and even if you are well, if you know Tamil, Swami Ji has uh, a fantastic uh, series on Yoga Sutras. It's around forty-five hours of material. Um, the first two chapters of Yoga Sutras are uh, absolutely brilliant. If you want to understand how your mind works. Uh, no, don't look no further <laughs> if you want to understand how your mind works. Um, than uh, the first two chapters of Yoga Sutras, I'll post both the links. Yeah, all three links.
3: just, uh, yeah, I'd like to add one comment to uh, I think this uh, when even I started doing TM when I was in high school, right? So, uh, and then, and my experience is very similar to chitra what she was saying right it's few days up few days down what i've realized over these years the, the clear differentiator that makes it consistent is uh, either you have to operate in a framework of a scripture right because the if you just do mindfulness when i started tm there was no you know you are uh, no know that you know becoming one advaita no philosophical framework it was just you repeat it right it, it is like a very, it has some effect, but it uh, it's, it's like you get a headache, you pop a pill in, right? And then, uh, but you, your symptom, your core is, you're, uh, you're still not treating your, why you're getting the headache to start with, right? A lot of the, um, what is so-called the Western mindfulness operate in, at least this is a personal insight, operated in that way, right? They don't go and treat the, the symptom. But if you learn it from, a scriptural reference like Yoga Sutra or from a master who's a, who's trained in that scriptural reference or a Bhagavad Gita because the, the framework then changes that you are not your identity is what needs to be dissolved right so then you start doing any meditation from the context of dissolving the identity right as a framework with that understanding then it starts having a, a better I mean it, it, it starts impacting you more I think without that framework any technique will at some point, the mind will start cheating it. You will you will sit, but you will lose it, uh, right? And and that is how that's been my personal insight over the years. Is uh, that, that's why you know people who are just without the Eastern philosophical anchoring, uh, if any of this is done, there's going to be a benefit. But exactly like what Sitra said, that's been my experience too, right? It's that, that's why you don't do it why because you know, if if we get if we are given uh, you know like mangoes every day we will eat it because we don't nobody needs to convince us to eat the mango right but if we are having finding difficult to sit 30 minutes it is not having the same impact on us right that is why it becomes a chore uh, the yeah. mind will always make it a chore uh, right and that's why my, my master my guru also used to say you will always change the technique because your mind will always cheat cheat the technique right i have to constantly give you new new biscuit right so that you start eating it otherwise you you'll cheat the mind and that's that's been personally my insight also is that without the framework of an eastern uh, um, scriptural framework or a teacher who's who's soaked in that scripture learning any kind of a just a western way at some point will become redundant and and you know people lose interest that's been an insight so absolutely very well
1: point Good point yeah
5: I think we are at 7.30, should
0: we? Oh, yeah, yeah. we are at 7.30. Wow, yeah. I didn't realize the time.
5: <laughs> right on the dot. on the
0: dot. Okay. Does anybody else want to uh, chant? Uh,
5: yeah, I can do a Shanti mantra. Okay, please. Om pur pur Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Eva Shishyate Om शांति शांति Shanti Om Shri Guru नमः Namah Rihyo. 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 Rihyo.
1: Rihyo. Rihyo.